ARIA Code is produced in partnership with the Metropolitan Opera, New York's premier opera company. Learn more and explore the Met's full season lineup at metopera.org. The Metropolitan Opera, all the stories on one stage. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Just a heads up, this episode includes a discussion of suicide and a suicide attempt. So if you want to skip this one, we totally understand. And if you struggle with suicidal thoughts, please call 911 or the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. He's in so much pain that he thinks that death, nothingness, would be better than the pain that he currently feels. From WQXR and the Metropolitan Opera, this is Aria Code. I'm Rhiannon Giddens. You know, you can't sit back and go, ah, this bit doesn't apply to me. Yes, mate, it does. It's about death. Every episode, we ask big questions about a single aria so that we can understand it better. Today, it's To Be or Not To Be, from Hamlet, in the opera by Brett Dean. You know, it's an existential howl into the void, and that's why it's relevant, and that's why it's all-consuming, because it makes you question life and death, and that's the biggest thing of all. To be or not to be. That's got to be one of the most recognizable lines in English literature. And somehow, everybody knows that it's from Hamlet, Shakespeare's longest play, 400 years and still going strong. And even if you just know that one line, chances are you've picked up bits of the story by osmosis. Some things are rotten. It's in Denmark. Prince Hamlet wants to kill his uncle, Claudius, because Claudius murdered Hamlet's father and then married his mother. Hamlet stalls, plays detective, contemplates suicide, breaks up with his girlfriend, and then dies, along with pretty much everyone else. It's such an unhappy story, but people freaking love it. It's been played by some of the greatest actors of stage and screen, and it's been adapted into a few operas, most recently by composer Brett Dean and librettist Matthew Jocelyn. Now, these two boil down the whole tragedy into just 12 scenes, the absolute essence. And of course, among these 12 scenes is Hamlet's famous soliloquy, to be or not to be. It's the speech where Hamlet thinks out loud about the hardships people face, and he wonders, is it really worth it, this whole life thing? Is it actually better to exist, to be, or not to be? For Hamlet, that is the question. But for us here today, there are a few more. Like, why do you and I and most random strangers on the street know the opening lines of Hamlet's famous soliloquy from hundreds of years ago? How does adding music change this text that we know so well? And what can it possibly mean to us today? Well, let me introduce you to the crack team of guests who are going to help us get to the bottom of it. First, tenor Alan Clayton. He premiered the role of Hamlet at the Glyndebourne Festival in England back in 2017. And unlike the title character, he had no questions about taking on this role. I'd never sung a role that big before. 
And of course I said yes straight away. I'd actually met Brett at a festival in Slovenia, bizarrely. And his first act when we first met was to put a can of beer in my hand. So I knew we were going to be very good friends. Next, Corey Ellison, an opera dramaturg who's on the vocal arts faculty at Juilliard. Corey worked closely with Brett Dean and Matthew Jocelyn to develop this opera. It was great fun reconfiguring it into operatic form and in a way trying to catch the spirit of it without necessarily the letter of it. And it was a real love fest, too. Everybody got along, which is kind of amazing (laughs) in the scheme of things. Third, Jeffrey Wilson. He's a preceptor of expository writing at Harvard. What the hell is a preceptor? (laughs) Basically, I'm, I'm a lecturer. I teach a course called Why Shakespeare. And lo and behold, every semester, Hamlet just teaches itself Hamlet doesn't need Jeff Wilson in order for it to be a successful text, much to my devastation. And finally, actor and director Samuel West, who knows the Danish prince very, very well. I played Hamlet for a year and three days for the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-on-Avon. And our version was very long. It was four hours. And we actually advertised it in the program as three hours, 55 minutes. And it was a bit like selling something at 9 99 It's Sam's performance of the original Shakespeare soliloquy that you'll hear in this episode. All right, off we go to Denmark and straight into the heart of Elsinore, the castle where all the drama unfolds in Brett Dean's Hamlet. Hamlet is a story about a Danish prince that is weirdly resonant to a lot of people who aren't Danish princes. It's a story about love and death and about what happens when the people that we love die. And it's a story about international politics and medieval Europe. I would say this is the story of a man who thinks too much. He lives a very examined life, if not an active one sometimes. So Hamlet is the young prince of Denmark. His father was the previous king of Denmark who died under mysterious circumstances. And the present king is his father's brother, Hamlet's uncle Claudius. Hamlet has witnessed the wedding of his mother to his uncle. Which is quite upsetting to him for good reason. So when when we first meet Hamlet, he is suicidally depressed. He's been visited by the ghost of his dad, a famous warrior who may be a devil, who's told him that he was murdered by his brother, the new king. And urges Hamlet on to revenge. And Hamlet, a famous warrior, who's studied philosophy at Wittenberg, goes... What? Revenge? We don't do that sort of thing anymore. I've always thought of it as Gladiator with Woody Allen playing Russell Crowe. He's miscast. And then we meet his love interest, Ophelia, who is the daughter of Polonius, who's this sort of pompous court official. Hey! 
She's smart, she's confident, she's courteous, she's kind. She's in love with Hamlet, or, or she thinks she was in love with Hamlet, or they were in love and, and they don't quite know what the relationship is anymore. Because through Hamlet's obsessive pursuing of revenge, he alienates and ignores Ophelia rather badly. There's been a conversation between Ophelia, Polonius, her dad, and the king and queen, all saying, you know, that Hamlet's lost his mind, he's gone mad. We see him walking around the, the palace with this sort of vacant stare. And Polonius is then told Ophelia that she will basically become a spy for them to understand what's really going on with Hamlet. So Ophelia's, you know, now acting as an agent of Polonius. She's pretending she's just doing her studies. While Claudius and Polonius then go and hide. So they exit at the very moment that Hamlet enters. And Ophelia's there reading her book. And that's the moment that he launches into to be or not to be. It's Hamlet's meditation on mortality. You know, do I or don't I exist, live? It's the question at the heart of humanity. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them, so, uh, when I was about 16 years old, I tried to commit suicide, and, and it's still pretty tough for me to talk about 20 years later. Um, I was kind of struggling with really bad self-esteem and depression and alcoholism. And, you know, I, I, I worked through it. I, I had an amazing family that was extremely supportive, uh, got me connected up with some medical resources, uh, went on to graduate from college, got my doctorate, Shakespeare scholar, college professor, couple of kids, life is good. But as, as I kind of look back on that now, it's interesting that I don't think I fully processed that experience for 20 years until I thought about it by way of Shakespeare's Hamlet. The aria starts with this sort of very low bass chord, almost like thunder going off to repeat it, sort of very low on the, the double basses and the piano. And then Hamlet enters, and he says, or not to be. Or not to be. Or not to be. You've also got a recorded noise, which is something you'd expect from a horror film, directly before, finally... To be. And it's weird. It starts very low in the tenor's range, kind of hushed, very inward. It's very sparsely accompanied at that point.
Brett said, everybody will be waiting for how you set to be or not to be. And he said, what, you know, what on earth do I do? What the hell do I do? You know, to be or not to be, well, to be or not to be. You know, just how do you set it and go, oh, that was a bit disappointing. But if you, if you sort of drip fed it, you drip fed elements of it, then the fact that I say it or not to be a billion times in the piece, I say to be once, that then makes it an event separate of the text that everyone already knows and understands. So for Hamlet, it's very much the end of a conversation that he's been having with himself since he was 15. There is this choice between life and death, and it's all tied up with with the the death of his dad and whether he's going to kill his uncle, the king. It starts with a paradox. To be or not to be. That is the question. Well, that's not really a question, is it? Where do you put the question mark in that? To be or not to be? It could be to die or not to die, to kill or not to kill, to act or not to act. But it's not. It's something bigger and more general. He seems to be saying, I don't know, what's the point? And although it's an essentially felt personal thing, it doesn't really seem to be just about Hamlet's personal circumstance. It's about all of our circumstance. Hamlet is formulating this soliloquy very much like, you know, an academic investigation. Here's the question I'm going to answer, to be or not to be, and it feels very formal. He's drawing upon these sort of formal logical devices that were used in 16th century education to investigate big questions like, should I kill myself or should I not kill myself? You know, you can't sit back and go, uh, this bit doesn't apply to me. Yes, mate, it does. It's about death. You're born, the only thing you know is nobody gets out of here alive. You're going to die. Listen up. And what's really interesting here is that it is in Sprechstimme, which means that it's half sung and half spoken. And what you see notated in the score, it's actually Brett's notation of how Alan spoke these lines. So that's really an interesting feature of this. The tradition of composers writing roles for specific singers goes back way into the sands of time, to the very beginnings of opera. It's not a new thing, but it is new in the sense that so much of our operatic repertory has been for so long a museum repertory where we're constantly reviving older pieces so that singers are used to opening up a score and that's it. You know, maybe in a Handel aria or a bel canto aria, they can ornament it. But other than that, they are stuck with what Mozart wrote for his sister-in-law with the freaky high voice. And they have to sort of fit into a role like uh, Cinderella into the glass slipper. However, there's a great luxury and a great opportunity to be part of a creative process 
when a singer gets to collaborate with a composer, and particularly a composer who is as collaborative as Brett Dean is. When you're in a rehearsal studio for any opera, there comes a point, no matter what show it is, however well it's known, where the director says, oh, for God's sake, if only Mozart were in the room. What the hell did he mean by the end of Don Giovanni? What the hell am I supposed to do? And for this process, you can do that. Brett Dean was sitting three metres away with a score, chewing a pencil, and you could say, Brett, what on earth were you thinking when you wrote this music? And he went, mm, I thought this and this and this. And you go, oh, OK, fine. And he, sometimes he would say, look, I've written this, but actually having seen what you want to do with the role or having seen the staging or having, you know, just things like balance, you know, this doesn't work, I can't hear you. So let's put it up an octave or let's, you know, let's rewrite it. And so the day of the first night, I was emailed a new setting of this sort of page of music. I was like, oh, good, I learned that then in the interval. I mean, thankfully, Glyndebourne has an hour and a half interval, so I was able to learn. But that was quite, you know, that was quite interesting and, and it's, a, it's a perfect example of what happens when you have the composer living and in the room. They can change things as late as first night. The vocal and dramatic demands of the role of Hamlet are really quite <laughs> formidable. And a lot of that has to do with Alan Clayton, his capacities as an artist. And all of that is written into this role. So I had a sort of mini breakdown not long afterwards. I got home and I was supposed to go straight to Frankfurt to do Anjegin. And I got in the cab to the airport and uh, I just looked at my girlfriend during the process of Hamlet. I'd moved house straight afterwards. My dad is dead. I don't have a relationship with my mum. So there's all these sort of things, I think, which were sort of... I was in the cab to the airport. I said, I don't think I can go to Frankfurt tomorrow. I don't think I can start rehearsals. And so I went to Terminal 5 at Heathrow. I went to the bar before security. And I just watched my flight go up the departure until it said left. It departed. And I got in a cab and went straight home. And um, I said to my agent, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to rehearsals tomorrow morning. Can you please apologize to Frankfurt. For me, this is awful. I mean, you know, I've never done anything so unprofessional in my life. But it was just those few months of everything going on with the, the turmoil of everything. And it was what, it, it, that was the, the reaction that my, my mind and body took. So Brett brilliantly uses a version of the speech that people know less well, which is from Q1, the bad quarto, which is basically a pirated copy of the play. This is what we call a memorial reconstruction of Hamlet. In other words, it's the play as remembered by somebody who was in it. It makes a deliberate decision to say, not to be or not to be, that is the question, but to be or not to be either is the point. And you think, um, yeah, kind of, have another go. You're nearly there. Is that all? So yes, Brett has very cleverly taken something that we think we know and set it doubly in ways that wake us up. First of all, using a version of the speech, which was the first ever published version of it. And secondly, by setting it to music. The accompaniment continues in a very sparse way, very delicate, pianissimo, as quiet as can be. And the vocal line 
gradually, gradually ramps up a little higher, a little higher. It's set in a very fragmentary way, a lot of rests between these sort of halting phrases. To die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. He's in so much pain that he thinks that death, nothingness, would be better than the pain that he currently feels. Then you have these tuned gongs all hanging around this sort of same chord that started the piece, that will end the piece, that you keep hearing. It's sort of like a Hamlet theme and it's a sort of really abstract chord. Is that all? And you have stones being clicked and clacked as well. Is that all? To be or not to be? No to sleep, to dream. There's another click. Aye, there's the point. To sleep, to dream. And when he repeats dream the second time, you suddenly have the strings, these really high, floaty, ethereal violin sounds start to come in. And it's like a sort of, um, I don't know, like a brain soup. You know, he's sort of swimming around in this this sort of otherworldly noise. And also, the other thing that Brett loves to do is write for really strange instruments and non-instruments. Sometimes you were thinking he was, you know, raiding the rubbish bins at Glyndebourne because he would come in with, you know, various crockery and tin foil and rocks and scrapey things and he would just try stuff at rehearsal and so there are in this opera some sounds that at first will seem almost unidentifiable and some of them remain unidentifiable but such a sonic imagination. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of disprised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Oh, in that dream of death. 
But then he pauses and considers, but what if death might not be the end of being? There might be a state of being after death that is even more painful than the one he's experiencing in life. He talks about the undiscovered country, which is you know, so famous that Star Trek used it. He's talking about going places that we don't know about. He's talking about the afterlife. He's talking about heaven and hell. And then you get this really low, dirty, cello noise coming in. It becomes this tremendously expansive line. And that's when you first hear Ophelia. But for this, but for the joyful hope of this... Ophelia is generally on stage during the speech, reading or pretending to read. Sometimes in the play, it seems as if she's just so peripheral to him. But Matthew and Brett bring her into the scene of Hamlet's To Be or Not To Be monologue to show how much she is weighing on his conscience. All in all, in this opera, the character of Ophelia is given a lot more agency and a lot more substance. It's so easy to forget that Ophelia is on stage while Hamlet is delivering to be or not to be. So often, Ophelia, if she even remains on stage, is way off on one of the sides, and it's sort of spotlight down on Hamlet and his existential angst. And I think what Brett Dean really captures is the way that we need to remember that Ophelia is there with Hamlet. And not only are we hearing these words, but she is hearing these words. She hears Hamlet, who she's been in a romantic relationship with, and they're having a tough time. They're going through a breakup, and it's not really clear to her why. She sees her former lover expressing these suicidal thoughts, and that kind of plants an idea in her mind. And then you see Ophelia enter into the realm of Hamlet's melancholy and suicidal depression in the second half of the play. And... To me, there's a a moment of suicide contagion that happens there. Suicide contagion is a, a term social psychologists use to talk about the ways that when suicide or suicidal ideas are kind of in the air, if there's a case or there's media reports on a case, that that can increase the prevalence of suicide or suicide ideas. So this is why there are media guidelines related to discussing suicide that, you know, don't describe in detail, don't romanticize the manner of death, make sure that you provide resources. So it kind of rattles me a little bit that the most famous soliloquy and the most famous play by the most famous English playwright is all about suicide. And we assign that in high schools every year. 
you know, what are the chances that every student is mentally in a place where it's going to be productive and healthy for them to engage with those kinds of thoughts and ideas. But I also think that it can be an opportunity for us to talk about the concept of suicide contagion, a kind of mechanism by which we might start some conversations. Hamlet carries on. Who would bear the scorns and flattery of the world, the taste of hunger or a tyrant's reign, and the spurns, the whips, the scorns, the pangs of disprized love? And when he gets here, he starts to repeat these words, the spurns, the spurns, the whips, the scorns. And Brett sets it up to a, up to a big G sharp, and you've had this big pedal note going in the basses, and suddenly there's a big change and a big explosion in the orchestra. And Hamlet says, who would this endure? You know, who'd put up with this, with this shit? Because it's just too much. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought. And enterprises of great pitch and moment, with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. And then the, the biggest climax of the piece comes when Hamlet sings, Oh, thus conscience makes cowards of us all. because he realises that he can't kill himself. He would take that route out, but he can't, because he, these nagging doubts persist. According to the, the version of Christianity that Hamlet was committed to, it's a sin to commit suicide. He would end up in everlasting hell if he were to do so, and that's why Hamlet can't do it. And you're left then with the tune gongs that you started this aria with. They're, they they come back, and he sees Ophelia. He sees that he's not alone. That Ophelia's been listening to everything, and so then begins you know the sort of the heartbreaking duet where it's the last time they talk really. And he says to a lady in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered. So he's you know he's asking her when she prays to remember him, and to pray for his forgiveness as well. She then says, Good my lord, I have remembrances of yours that I have longed to re-deliver. And she hands him back these, these love letters, these tokens of their love. And he takes them and then just throws them to the floor and says, Not I. I never gave you aught. I didn't give you anything at all. I didn't love you. He suddenly becomes wise to the fact that he's being spied upon. He becomes aggressive and violent and hostile toward Ophelia. And here we have the, the sort of the, the breakdown, not only of the relationship between Hamlet and Ophelia, but the beginning of her mental breakdown. She just simply doesn't understand why he's become so unhinged and why he doesn't seem to love her anymore. And this is where he very famously says to her, get thee to a nunnery. And it's thought by Shakespearean scholars that a nunnery meant actually a whorehouse. So it's not that he's, you know, saying you're so pure that you should go be a nun, but that you're damaged goods, so I'm not interested anymore. Ophelia is just beyond words. She just can't handle it. So she starts making all these high, skittery sounds when Hamlet is sort of cursing her out. 
I mean, I guess you know you could call, you could call it ghosting, but it's ghosting at the sort of nth degree. It's it's absolutely horrendous. He denies our love was ever real when it was, and it's 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 such self sabotage and self hurt. But ultimately, it's because he knows the journey he's taking, and he knows he can do only that alone, and certainly not with her at his side. You know, Hamlet is always marked out as the guy who just can't quite get himself to take the revenge. And when he finally does, it sort of backfires spectacularly. And as soon as he does the deed, you know, there's another 200 lines of the greatest thing Shakespeare ever wrote. And then you sit down at 10 o'clock for an hour of fighting and corpses. Laertes and, and Claudius have planned to kill Hamlet with a poison sword. But Hamlet knows exactly what's going on, and uh, he grabs a sword and basically kills everyone. Uh, he dies as well. And that's Hamlet in a nutshell. And if you wanted a, a precy of it, which is very hard to put in any other words, they're pretty simple words, to be or not to be. Life is terrible. I've lost my father. I can't trust my mother. My girlfriend is a woman and therefore tainted with the same brush. Why don't I kill myself? Because I'm a coward. Because the afterlife is unknown. Why don't you kill yourself, sir? You're going to die anyway. Why don't you do the brave thing? Because you're a coward. Thank you very much, yes. Okay. Now we can carry on with the play. You know, things are absolutely as bad as they can absolutely be. Let's go on. And that's it. That's the epitome of Western drama. It's a heartbreaking place to be at the end of the show. And I always feel heartbroken for him. I feel really sad. And it, it's, it sort of stays with you the next day and the next day. And then you do another show and then you're like, oh, Christ, I got through it again. And it consumes you because it doesn't matter where you are in the world or who you are or what you do for a living, what age you are. We've all asked ourselves these same questions that he does. And it's, you know, it's an existential howl into the void, which is what we all do. And we all, we all question ourselves. And some people maybe don't think about it as much as others, but it's always in the background. And that's why it's relevant. And that's why it's all consuming, because it makes you question life and death. And that's the biggest thing of all. At the end of the play, Hamlet says, draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. And I think about storytelling as, as one way in which we can cope with the intensity and the, the pain and the, the pressure of, of, you know, bad things that happen in life. And that as audience members, we know that we can go see a play and we see pity and fear represented on stage and we kind of cathartically release those emotions from our life. You ask me who Hamlet is. I mean, he's all of us in difficulty. The question is, how do we live truthfully in a world which doesn't require us to? The speech certainly is much better at asking questions than answering them. But perhaps that uncertainty is part of the reason for its fame. If it was a more straightforward speech, if it was more personal to Hamlet, if it made more sense, I suspect we wouldn't still be talking about it. 
actor Samuel West, Professor Jeffrey Wilson, dramaturg Corey Allison, and tenor Alan... You're listening to Aria Code, produced in partnership with the Metropolitan Opera. Visit the Met and experience an exciting mix of bold new works and timeless classics. Buy tickets, watch videos, and learn more at metopera.org. The Metropolitan Opera. All the stories on one stage. I'm Terrence McKnight. Join me for a new season of the podcast where people tell stories about the classical music that shaped their lives. I'm Tom Hiddleston. My name is Natalie Joachim. I'm Marin Alsop, and you're listening to The Open Ears Project. You're going to meet some incredible people, and maybe, like them, fall in love with a piece of music. The Open Ears Project. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Clayton. Decoding to be or not to be from Brett Dean's Hamlet. Alan will be back to sing it for you after the break. Hamlet's had a really rough couple of months. Plus, he's a philosopher by nature, so his mind turns to the biggest question there is. What is the point of being alive? Here's tenor Alan Clayton as the Danish prince singing to be or not to be on stage at the Glyndebourne Festival Opera. Yeah. <laughs> 
No matter how many times you've heard the words to be or not to be, there's something shockingly new about them in the music of Brett Dean. That was tenor Alan Clayton joining the ranks of the many great performers to play the role of Hamlet. I can hardly believe I'm saying this, but the next episode will be our last for this season. And we're going out with another incredible dramatic moment in opera. It's the letter scene from Eugene Onegin by Tchaikovsky, starring Renee Fleming. If you've enjoyed the season, please leave us a rating or a review. What was your favorite episode? What new aria did you fall in love with? What arias would you like us to decode next season? We'd love to know. Aria Code is a co-production of WQXR and the Metropolitan Opera. The show is produced and scored by Marin Lazian. Max Fine is our assistant producer, Helena DeGroote is our editor, and Matt Abramovitz is our executive producer. Mixing and sound design by Matt Boynton and Anya Jeshik from Ultraviolet Audio, and original music by Hannes Brown. This project is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, on the web at arts.gov. I'm Rhiannon Giddens. See you next time. I've always wanted to do it as a game show host with a big glittery jacket, just because I like sequins, really, uh, on a game show called The Question. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Question. Tonight's question, to be or not to be. That is The Question.